2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes these things to the Corinthians. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's interesting how many phrases we use in our modern vernacular that come from a bygone era. Younger people like the frame of reference to understand some of the colloquialisms that are still in use. For example... Upset the apple cart. I mean, like, what does that mean? What is an apple cart? How about this one? Turn the channel. How do you turn a channel? Hang up the phone. I mean, when was the last time you literally hung up a phone? Dial a number. Same problem. What's a dial? How about this one? You sound like a broken record. Most millennials have no idea what a record is, let alone a broken one. Roll up the window. Yeah, how does that work? Hold your horses. Really? How about this one? See you on the flip side. I mean, what's a flip side? And there are many more like this. He was put through the ringer. Or you're running out of steam. Or I need your John Hancock right here. Or tape a show. What does that mean? Or even the word clockwise. Today, digital clocks have made that term obsolete. These phrases linger, but the concepts behind them that were once a part of our life are no longer even recognized. And there is another word that tragically I would put into this same category. It's the term holiness. In the church, this phrase, living a holy life, it was once used often. But today, few Christians even know what it means. In 2006, pollster George Barna did a survey. He reported on the results of his survey under the title, The Concept of Holiness Baffles Most Americans. One in five surveyed had no idea what the word holiness even meant. The other 80% had a wide range of differing opinions. The most startling finding 
was that only 35% of Americans believe God expects them to be holy. Here is a window into the current state of Christianity in America. Two-thirds of churchgoers have no taste for, no understanding of, no desire to be holy. How many people do you know, even your Christian friends, really value their personal holiness as a top priority in their life? Sadly, even a lot of pastors these days shy away from talking about the topic. Holiness is becoming a forgotten word. Whereas in my Bible, today's section, this morning's passage of Scripture is entitled, Be Holy. God must still value holiness. This is Paul's subject here in the second half of chapter 6 and in the first verse of chapter 7. He encourages the Corinthians, as well as you and me, to live a holy life. Now before we jump into our text, let's begin by making sure that we know what Paul means by this important phrase he employs here in chapter 7, verse 1, perfecting holiness. The Greek word translated holy is the word hagios. It means to treat as special to God or to set aside for God's exclusive use. Often we think of holiness as an intrinsic quality. What's holy is better or purer than what's not. But that's not really the right use of the word. In the Old Testament, the bowls and utensils and the shovels used in the temple, they were considered holy. Not because they were made from any special metals or because of a specific design. No, their construction and the materials from which they were made, they all were likely made from the same kinds of materials that were, that were used to make other vessels. No, these cups, these bowls, these shovels, what made them holy was their dedication to the Lord's service. It was their consecration, not their composition, that made them holy. Once there was a mom who thought her household rules would carry more weight among her kids if they were written like Old Testament laws. She thought, oh, surely her kids would obey biblical-sounding commandments. And so here was her rules. Of the beasts of the field and of the fish of the sea and of all foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the hoofed animals broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the clo cloven hoofed animals, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn and of the wheat and of the oats and of the cereals that are of bright color, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of frozen dessert and of all frozen after-meal treats you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups you may drink, but not in the living room. Neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, of any food or beverage, there you may not eat, neither may you drink. But if you are sick and are lying down and watching something, then may you eat in the living room. Well, obviously, with only a few exceptions, her living room was off limits to eaters and drinkers. 
I'm sure this mom's living room was constructed of the same materials as every other room in her house. But apparently, she had dedicated her living room as a special room for special functions. Thus, she, what was allowed in other rooms didn't happen in the living room. And this is how we should understand holiness. Your life is God's living room. You are the place where he dwells on this earth. In you is where he continues his work and lives out his life. And he is very picky about what happens in the living room. As a Christian, you're special to God. Not because you're intrinsically better than your peers, but because you're God's child. Your life, all that you are, has been set apart for his exclusive purposes. When you embrace Jesus as your Lord, you in essence reserved your life for him. You dedicated yourself to him. Thus, anything that defaces the beauty and the purity of a Christian's life, that diminishes God's glory in that person or tarnishes their witness, becomes off limits. God cares about what happens in the living room. And here's why this subject comes up at this point in Paul's letter. He's been talking about our relationship with this world. He's been telling us not to close ourselves off from the folks who need us most. Let's get out of our Christian bubble and let's interact with the people who need Jesus. You see, a believer can get trapped in a Christian subculture that limits opportunities to interact with lost people. He or she ends up having, only having meaningful spiritual conversations with other Christians who agree with them. That's why in chapter 5, Paul tells us that God has given us as Christians the ministry of reconciliation. We're to be actively involved in reaching non-Christians with the gospel. He calls us ambassadors for Christ. We're citizens of heaven living in a foreign land. That means our job is to speak God's word to the people Jesus died to save in a way that they can understand. This is our mission here on the earth. But here's the problem. We can actually go to the other extreme. We can get so immersed in the culture around us that we no longer are a reflection of heaven and God's kingdom. Remember, a Christian is an interpreter. We need to be articulate in both languages, in the language of heaven and in the language of earth. Certainly, I can be fluent in heaven's language, but out of touch with the people around me. But there's another danger. I can become so fluent and so saturated with the language and culture of earth, so familiar with the pagan ways around me, that I fail to grasp what really matters to heaven. We get too worldly in our thinking and in our perspective. When George Schultz served as the Secretary of State, he kept a large globe in his office. Whenever he met with a United States ambassador, he always gave them a quiz. He would tell them to go over to the globe and to point to their country. Invariably, they would pick the nation to which they had been sent. And Schultz would give them a lesson in diplomacy. He would correct them by pointing to America. That's their country. Schultz wanted his foreign ambassadors to never forget that the land where they lived was not their home. An ambassador's home 
is the land that he represents. And the same is true for an ambassador of Christ. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And we need to represent it well here among the kingdoms of men. Here's what can happen. In an effort to build bridges with lost people, we can become familiar with their music and with their movies and with their fashions and with their styles. But culture isn't just a reflection of people's values. It also shapes our values. And this was especially dangerous in decadent Corinth. I mean, you couldn't dip your toe anywhere in Corinthian culture without contracting a virus. Life in Corinth was twisted. Greed was glorified and sex was worshipped. And Paul is warning these Corinthian believers that they can go too far. They need to remain holy and separated unto God. They need to keep their hearts and their minds out of the gutter. As a grandpa, and I love being a grandpa. I'm a proud grandpa. As a grandpa, I recognize when my granddaughter Hannah has soiled her diaper. I'm not aloof. I mean, I'm not an uncaring person or standoffish to my baby girl's situation. I take a whiff. I notice around the edges. I mean, I notice when she's soiled her diaper. That doesn't mean I need to change the diaper. That's the parent's job. I'm G-Daddy, man. I don't change diapers. I can be informed without getting personally involved in her poop. And this is my attitude toward a lost world. I don't need to open up a diaper to understand the problems people are having out there. Besides, it's Jesus who cleans them up anyway, not me. I don't have to get all into their poop to bring people to Jesus. It was after Paul left Corinth that problems developed in their church. In short, rather than the church influencing Corinth, Corinth influenced the church. Paul was in Ephesus when he learned of the trouble that was going on. And it was from there he pens this letter of correction. You remember the old analogy, boats are made to be in the water, but you don't want water in the boat? I mean, high seas and storms are no threat to a well-built boat. Ships are fabricated to stay afloat in the rough water. The danger, though, is if that water ever gets into the boat. And this is the danger in the life of a Christian. Jesus builds us to survive, even thrive, on the storm-tossed seas of this world. He makes us his witness. But if the values of this world ever seep into a Christian's heart, they'll sink us. And this was what was going on in Corinth. The Corinthian believers had gotten bogged down, even waterlogged. Some were downright drowning. This is why Paul appeals to them so forcefully in verse 11. Oh, Corinthians, We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. In other words, I've been spilling my guts. I've been pouring out my heart to you. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Paul says, stop blaming me for your problems. 
Why is it when Christians stop growing or when they lack motivation in their life, they tend to blame the pastor? I know this happens. Oh, he's just not feeding me like he used to. Something's happened to him. You know, he's just not into it like he used to be. We're just not getting the same out of it that we once did. Paul says, no, you are the cause of your own problems. One night I was listening to a Dr. Laura call-in show. I kind of like Dr. Laura. One caller was talking about the problems that her parents were having. That's when Dr. Laura jumped in and corrected the lady. She said, no, the problems they are creating. She explained that when a tornado demolishes your house, you have a problem. But when you act selfishly and make poor choices, you create a problem. There's a difference between having and creating difficulties. And here Paul is saying to the Corinthians that they are the creators of their troubles, not just their victims. In verse 13 he adds, Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. See, Paul feels like he's been treating these Corinthians like a bunch of children. He's saying, okay, I've been honest with you, now you need to be honest with me. For the last several chapters, Paul has laid bare his resume and his motives for ministry. Earlier in chapter 6, Paul pointed to the pressures and the priorities and the paradoxes of his ministry as evidence of its genuineness. You don't put up with all that Paul put up with if you're a phony or if you're a hypocrite. Paul had been an open book to these Corinthians. Now it was time for them to open up to him, for them to practice some self-examination. And in verse, verse 14, he lays out a vital aspect of holiness. He says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now the imagery here is that of a plow being pulled by two oxen. The necks of the animals are in a wooden harness or a yoke. This yoke is constructed. It was made to force the oxen to work together. It caused one pain if it didn't cooperate with the other. The yoke choked the ox who pulled ahead. It pinched the neck of the ox that lagged behind. The yoke was designed to encourage teamwork. Thus, it was easier if the animals in the yoke were of the same breed. If you were to mix a donkey or a horse with an oxen, you would ensure friction and frustration among both partners. Different species have different natures that pull apart and that fight against each other. And this is the case with a believer and an unbeliever. Put these two people together in a binding kind of relationship and there's going to be friction eventually. Oh, but we're soulmates. You don't understand, Pastor Sandy. Our hearts have been yoked together. It doesn't really matter what he believes about God Oh, we have this connection. It's a special connection. We love each other. Well, I'm here to tell you, it's going to matter big time. Whether you see it now or not, what a person believes about God will influence the choices they make in life. It'll have a profound effect on the way they live their life and how they treat other people and the way they manage their money and on and on it goes and raise their kids. In choosing a mate, their faith is not where you want to compromise. 
If she's a little homely looking, that's okay. Go ahead and marry her. Love will overcome. Or if he doesn't have all the money you were hoping for, no big deal. Love will overshadow those deficiencies. But if she or she isn't committed to Jesus, date that person like the plague. Run away as fast as you can. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Realize a Christian and a non-Christian are separate species. We're different breeds with diverse natures. A believer has been born of God. We're alive to the Spirit of God. Whereas an unbeliever might be a nice person, but they're dead in sin and unaware of God's Spirit. Put these two breeds in the same yoke, whether that be a marriage or a business or a roommate situation or a serious dating relationship, and it's going to cause big league, long-term frustration. Oh, at first, the parties might let stuff slide, but over time, they'll eventually drift in different directions. You'll pinch or choke the other. The yoke will produce pain. Trust me, an unequal yoke is no joke. See, here's the rule. Be a friend to sinners, but fellowship only with saints. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 warns us, evil company corrupts good habits. Hang out with bad influences long enough and you'll eventually get hung out to dry. To help the Corinthian believers think this through, in verses 14 to 16, Paul asks five rhetorical questions. He says, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In other words, some things just don't mix. Oil and water. They don't mix. Honey and vinegar. Drinking and driving. That doesn't mix. Hot days and chocolate bars. They don't mix. Water and electricity. Bulldogs and gators. Just watch this weekend. Sunshine and homework. I mean, some things don't mix, and that is especially true with believers and unbelievers. Look at each of these questions carefully. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? A righteous person stands before God with their back straight and with their head held high. They're unashamed. Not because they haven't sinned, but because their sin is now under the blood of Jesus Christ. Whereas a lawless man, he lives his life ducking and jiving and diving, trying to avoid God at all costs. He knows that in the light of God, his outright rebellion, even his secret sins will be exposed. Deep down inside, he's ashamed. The righteous and the lawless have two diametrically opposed approaches to God. They don't go together. And what about communion? What communion has light with darkness? Notice, how do you get rid of the darkness? You turn on the light. That's right. Darkness and light don't coexist. They cancel each other out. And Paul is saying the same is true with a believer and an unbeliever. He says, in what accord has Christ with Belial? The word Belial means worthless. It was an ancient epithet for Satan. 
If your heart was made to be inhabited, and it is, by the way, then the most appalling mistake you can make is to put God and Satan in the same room at the same time. Overlap their reservation. Are you nuts? There's no way that God and Satan can ever coexist or hang out together with each other. Satan will fear God, and God won't appreciate the devil's company. Trust me. That's why a union between a believer and an unbeliever is doomed from the beginning. Or what part as a believer with an unbeliever? As the old saying goes, they're marching to a different drummer. And this is the point Paul is making in our text. In all of these kinds of bonding relationships, we need to have contact with unbelievers. But contact is one thing. Contract is a very different thing. Contact, yes, but contract, no. It's okay to shake hands, even rub shoulders with the world. As long as I am the influencer, I can interact. But when I become the influenced, I need the freedom to leave. If I get too intertwined, if I get too interconnected to exit when I need to, then I end up vexed and ultimately defeated. Paul asks one more question in verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As a believer in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit lives in you. You are the temple of the Lord. Now why would God ever room with idols? It's an insult to God. Such an arrangement diminishes His glory. It lures God to the level of a sticker stone. As the temple of God's spirit, do you want to be dragged down and share the same plight as an idol? And this is what happens whenever you so yoke yourself to this world that your outcome and their outcome become inseparably linked. See, if God is bound to judge this world, which he is, and you're linked to it, then you're actually setting yourself up for some collateral damage. Hey, if you're rolling with the party crowd, I mean, there's times when you might not have even taken a drink or you might not be involved in what they're involved with. But if you're rolling with that crowd and somebody does something stupid, then all of a sudden you become vulnerable to the consequences of their actions. The cops are probably going to haul you off to jail too. Say you buy into a business with an unbeliever. And I get it, God loves that unbeliever. But what if he loves that unbeliever enough to try to get their attention by setting in motion some crippling financial hardships? That often gets our attention. Well, God warns you to stay out of the way. Don't yoke yourself to an unbeliever. But you did it anyway. Now the only person you got to blame is yourself. A holy life will avoid these kinds of entanglements. He says, for as God has said, and in verse 16 he quotes Ezekiel 37, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. If God is our God, if he dwells in us and walks with us, then linking our lives to an unbeliever is the ultimate incompatibility. If I'm walking with God, I'll reach out to unbelievers. I'll be a witness for Jesus. I'll serve that person and love that person. All that's great. 
But if my relationship with an unbeliever becomes a wedge between me and God, then watch out. Holiness clarifies my allegiances. It streamlines my priorities. It reserves my life and my heart for God alone. In verse 17, Paul quotes Isaiah 52. He says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. It is so sad to me, but somewhere along the line, the church today has gotten the notion that in order to win the world, we need to be like the world. To be relevant, we need to use the same vulgar language and become familiar with the same filthy movies, etc., etc. To me, that's ridiculous. Obviously, that's not what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said that he would become all things to all men, that he might win some. Relating to lost people has its limits. Finding common ground doesn't mean sinking into the mud with somebody. It doesn't mean adopting their corrupt habits and thinking. Here in the context of this verse, he's talking about reconciling sinners, representing Jesus. But Paul is clear that's not the tack to take, to stoop down and get involved in the same things the world's involved in. Sure, to be a good interpreter, we need to know the language of the world, and we certainly need to show empathy. But if we act like the world, we've got nothing to give them. If we're only acting like the world, we've got zero to give them. It's only when we're different from the world different spiritually and morally and joyfully, that the world will want what we've got. It's by coming out of the world that we show lost men the way out, that there is a difference, that there is a better way to live. It's our holiness that attracts people to Jesus. This is why Paul continues in verse 17. He says, do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. What makes us think anybody would want to shake a dirty hand? The person you're witnessing to may be desperately reaching out for help, but how long are they going to hold a hand that's no cleaner than their own? A holy God certainly doesn't want to hold hands with filthy hands. Once a mom, she was trying to teach a lesson to her sons. She was out in the garden. And she pointed to her white garden gloves. She said, boys, notice, when I stick my gloves in the dirt, the gloves become dirty. The dirt doesn't become glovey. We can never underestimate the lure of our flesh. I don't care what spiritual heights you're capable of reaching. Like deer's feet on high places, you can run with God. You can experience deep intimacy with the Holy Spirit but you still have clay feet. You're still a human being like everyone else. We're made of flesh, and we get tempted. We grow weak. You see, it's always easier for the gloves to get dirty than it is for the dirt to get glovey. Recently, there was a passage that really caught my attention as we were studying through Ezekiel. Chapter 44, verse 21 reads, No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. 
Ezekiel is describing the millennial temple, the worship that will occur when Jesus returns. Hey, this is the time when Jesus reigns on the earth, when heaven comes to earth, when the earth will become a utopia. But it's fascinating to me that even under that best-case scenario, in an environment totally conducive to godliness, God still warns the priests not to drink alcohol when they enter the temple to worship Him. Why is that? It's because the priests are still fleshly. And as long as they live in fleshly bodies, they're susceptible to fleshly temptations like getting drunk. And if the priest dulls his spiritual sensitivities and gets reckless with the holy things, it will ruin his worship of God. You see, even in a perfect world where God's servants are heading off to worship no less, they still have to separate themselves from temptations and dangers and potential liabilities. Holiness is still the issue. Today I hear of Christians who get together to drink a few brewskis and to study the Bible. And I'm appalled. Sure, a Christian has the liberty to drink a beer or a glass of wine. But he shouldn't do so without recognizing the inherent dangers that come with it. And safeguarding the holy things from potential misuse. Drinking alcohol and pursuing God are a problematic combination. If ministry to God in the temple doesn't deserve our purest and our most guarded, then what in the world does? The problem in a nutshell is a lack of holiness. We should reserve ourselves at our best for God's purposes. In verse 17, God says invitingly, I will receive you. But notice what's first. Do not touch what is unclean. God wants us to know him. But we need to have the decency not to enter his presence nonchalant with dirt on our hands or with a stench on our breath. We need to be holy. I think the goal of a Christian in his or her interactions with the world is a lot like that of a fisherman. I haven't done a lot of fishing in my life, but the times when I've gone... The idea has been to catch some fish without getting wet yourself or falling out of the boat into the lake. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. That means we need to know the lake. We need to know where the good beds are located, what bait to use, where the fish like to feed, all those kinds of things. But you can know all that and even catch a lot of fish and still stay dry. You don't have to jump into the pond to pull out a fish. In fact, a fisherman who goes swimming probably won't be a successful fisherman. Chances are you won't catch a lot of fish if you don't stay in the boat. And the same is true in our attempts to win people to Jesus. We don't need to get wet with this world to catch fish for Jesus. An ambassador for Christ stays loyal to God's kingdom. He doesn't betray the values of his homeland. Mike Howerton tells the story of a neighborhood football game that he played in as a child. For a while, he was having the time of his life. After a heavy downpour, Mike and his buddies, they found some standing water in a field. They played mud football. You ever played mud football? It's a lot of fun. Every tackle sent them sliding 10 yards. The ball was like a grease pig. There were fumbles. There was laughter. Everyone had fun. 
That is, until Mike tackled his buddy. After they slid 20 yards together, Mike noticed something white on his friend's shoulder. He took a closer look. It was a clump of wet toilet paper. Suddenly, the boys realized that they were playing in a sewer backup. In heavy rain, sewer water clogged up. Mike and his friends realized they were playing in poopy water. You've never seen a group of kids run home any faster. And I wonder when it's going to dawn on some Christians that the fun they think they're having, the supposed liberties they think they're enjoying, is actually spiritual sewage. Paul says in verse 18, I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As Christians, we literally are God's kids. And our goal as God's kids is to live like it. Not push the limits of our Father's patience with our compromise. If you want to see how far you can indulge in the world and still belong to God, that's the wrong attitude. Our priority should be to never dishonor our Father. And again, this is why you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. You're God's kid. And when you marry, you join another family. And sparks fly when you marry into the wrong family. Some of you guys know that. Not me, but some of you guys know that. I heard it said, if a child of God marries a child of the devil, then the child of God is sure to have some trouble with his father-in-law. You can count on it. And I hate to harp on this. I've just seen so much pain. I could feel a 40-gallon drum with the tears that have been shed in my office over the misery caused by unequally yoked marriages. Add to that businesses and other kinds of relationships. Nothing is as agonizing and as complex and as taxing on a Christian as being married to someone who doesn't share their most basic, heartfelt allegiance to Jesus. There's actually a road sign at the beginning of the Alaskan Highway. It reads, choose your rut carefully. You'll be in it for the next 200 miles. And if you're a Christian contemplating a partnership with a person who doesn't share your faith, that road sign is for you. Give serious consideration before you enter into a yoked relationship. And when it comes to marriage, let me give you one more thought. It's just my conviction, but no one will refute its truthfulness. You will never marry an unbeliever if you never date one. There's one more verse included in our text this morning. It's actually the first verse of the next chapter. I hope you know that the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible were not in the original. They came later. They're man-made. They were added so we can find our way around and get to certain specific verses. But sometimes the inventors get it wrong, which in my opinion happened here. The first verse in chapter 7 should actually be the last verse in chapter 6. It sort of wraps up the previous thought so well. It reads, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is such a loaded verse. 
the great promises of God that Paul has discussed earlier, our motivation for us to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Certainly, we're cleansed spiritually by Jesus the moment we're saved. But there's also a cleansing that comes in the Christian life. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls it the washing of water by the word. It's when we study our Bible. It's when we yield our thoughts to God. A cleansing just sort of rolls over our thinking and our habits and our likes and our dislikes. And just slowly we get cleansed and we conform ourselves to God's thinking and to God's habits and to God's attitudes. It's a beautiful thing that happens in our lives. This is what we should be pursuing. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now don't mistake this phrase, perfecting holiness, with sinful perfection. There's no such thing. This side of heaven, none of us are ever going to be totally sinless. As long as we occupy these fallen bodies, we'll stumble at times. The Greek word translated perfecting actually means to complete or to finish or to progress forward. Paul is encouraging us to complete our holiness, to grow in our holiness, to become more holy tomorrow than we were today. We need to separate unto God more and more areas of our life until the whole enchilada eventually belongs to the Savior. Pastor Kent Hughes makes an interesting observation. He says, the great tragedy for so many people is that as they get older, they do not get any holier. Time has been the enemy. They left their moral apex in junior high school. They were better boys than they are men. Christians tend to get apathetic. We grow lax. The string on our bow loosens. We're no longer straight shooters. It's been said most Christians are far too indiscriminate about the things they allow to influence their minds. How discriminating are you about what you put into your mind? We forget it's garbage in, garbage out. We wonder why we're having so many problems. Well, check the input. We need to guard where we allow our minds to graze. If we're to be holy, we got to take out the trash. Every Wednesday, our church Joe, JP, good old JP, he comes by my office with a fresh garbage can liner. And he always sticks his head in and he asks, he says, Pastor Sandy, got any trash? And this is what I need to be asking myself. Got any trash, Sandy? Have you been accumulating any trash in your life? We both need to ask ourselves this question. If we don't take out the trash regularly, what happens to it? It piles up. It stinks. It offends our God and it sours the attitudes of the folks around us. We need to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, both the lusts and the lulls. We need to do so by taking out the trash. My wife would get really mad at me if I didn't take out the trash. And you know what? I think for God, I think he's gotten a little ticked off at some of us because we haven't taken out the trash. 
Here's my question for you this morning. Got any trash? 